Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to get started. So uh, let me start us off with a word of prayer while this lovely music is in the background, and I will pray over it. Father, we thank you for this day and for this chance to come together. We thank you for C.S. Lewis and for his ministry. We pray that you would use our time together tonight to draw us more deeply into the things of your kingdom and to fire our love for Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so does anybody have any idea what this is? Yes. Good job. Uh, This is the record of John. Now, does anybody know who the composer of that might be? This is really reaching. <laughs> so it's Orlando Gibbons, who is not from Florida. Uh, Orlando Gibbons, uh, one of the great composers of uh, the Anglican tradition, uh, was a chorister in the King's Chapel Royal and went on to become the organist choir master at Westminster Abbey. Uh, long ago, born in the 16th century uh, and worked in the very end of the 16th century, beginning of the 17th. But this particular work um, is about John the Baptist, and it is a quote um, out of the Gospel of John. And the reason that I wanted to play this uh, is twofold. One is that it is the choir from Magdalen College, Oxford, singing, and it was recorded in their chapel, which was where Lewis went every day after his conversion to worship. But it's also uh, about John the Baptist, who was an extremist for the gospel, uh, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight. So let me uh, put that to rest for a moment. It's all good. Do not worry. We don't want to miss a thing. (laughs) You know, I wonder that C.S. Lewis ever slept. (laughs) Yes. Yes. We're going to talk about that. Hold on to that thought. So we are uh, standing against the devil's schemes here. And I want to start with this scripture verse that is full of really good theology about the devil that's important to remember. So let's say this together. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, 
praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And one of the great glories of that passage is that it is so proactive. We are not in a reactive stance against the devil. We are to be proactive. So just some reminders here. We want to study this so we can understand the battle we're in to learn to think Christianly, develop a Christian worldview, understand temptation, learn habits we can cultivate to deepen faith in Christ, and to live a boldly Christian life. And we've talked uh, all through this class about the importance of habits, and that really is the main theme that underlies this entire book, is that the Christian that has developed godly habits is the scariest thing that Satan ever runs into. And so he wants to, at all cost, keep us away from godly habits. So running through a few of the things that we have talked about, before I do that, just a little commercial since Jeff went on and on in the service um, tonight. Um, We are going to talk about this amazing, awesome conference that I went to that Steve and Karen Miller were at and Elizabeth Scott and Lavinia Thaxton and some of y'all know Josie May who was of previous St. Philippians we were all there drinking from this uh, giant fire hose of Lewis stuff and um, the problem if I tried to do it tonight I would talk for five hours and um, I don't think any of you want that So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break it down, and each week over the next several weeks, we're going to get some nuggets out of it right at the end. So so back to our first letter. One of the things with this, we're going to see there are all kinds of habits to develop, but don't hear this as a crushing load of things. Hear this as being just a whole host of things that can be helpful, a whole bunch of tools to have in your toolbox. So that first one is connecting, thinking, and doing. Um, Live out what you say your values are. Um, Focus on universal issues, the true, the good, the beautiful, rather than the immediate stream of ordinary life and busyness. This proactive setting your mind on things above. This is another major theme all through this book. And in our culture, this cannot be emphasized enough. Uh, The third one, spend time in beautiful places reading things that make you think and considering their implications. Beauty is a pointer to God, and there's such a theology of beauty that's always been part and parcel of our faith that's gotten lost in the past hundred years that we need to recover. Um, Explore the real sciences and the wonder of the earth and the heavens. We had a great session on this in that conference. Uh, And then love God with your mind. Learn to think Christianly and critically rather than just go with the flow. The second letter, embrace Christianity not just as a theory but by being transformed. Deepen your understanding of the church. Don't think of the church just as your local congregation, but think of as what we talked about on All Saints Day, that whole stream of the church triumphant from the disciples right up on through this present age, all of those believers who died in faith in Jesus Christ who are that cloud of witnesses surrounding us. We are not alone. Uh, Another thing is to view others through the lens of Christ rather than the lens of culture or self-interest. 
It's really hard but very important. Focus on the ultimate goal and the joy of following Christ. Not the labor, not the hardship, but the joy that is in his kingdom. And then constantly keep in the front of your mind and heart a sense of wonder at God's mercy in redeeming a sinner like you. We are all too often prone to think that we are like Lake Wobegon, where we are all better than average. And we sort of deserve, I mean, God was lucky that he got us. Um, but if you start going there, that is, a, that is not the primrose path. That is a dangerous path. And we've talked about how the old hymns and the old Puritan preachers are really good about reminding us that absent Christ, we are hopeless sinners. The third letter, keep your relationships surrounded with prayer and the Holy Spirit. Don't let Satan get a foothold. Practice Matthew 18 of going to anyone you've got a problem with individually and working it out. And don't let a root of bitterness get in. This is a huge problem in the church today. Cultivate the integration of your spiritual life and your outward behavior. Uh, What you believe and your faith in Christ should make a difference in the way that you act. Practice nurturing and practical prayer for others, believing the best and avoiding being overly sensitive. Be gracious and speak life. Don't be someone speaking judgment all the time. Remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, his most important teaching, says, Judge not, that ye be not judged. If Jesus said, judge not, that probably means we might want to pay attention. Um, Another thing that is really important is to cultivate spiritual humility. And you might remember when we talked about this um, several weeks ago, we talked about John the Baptist as the example of that, this great prophet, but he said, He must increase, I must decrease, because what he wanted to do was to point people to Jesus, and that is what we should want as well. Habit four, praying with serious, focused attention. I'm sure all of us are really good at that. None of us struggle with that. Um, But the idea there is that it is so easy for us to get distracted. Uh, to go off on tangents, to go to the grocery list or you know, whatever it might be that's on our mind. Um, praying expectantly that you're going to encounter the presence of the Lord. Um, consider your setting and your posture. Um, there are all these beautiful examples in the Bible of people praying while they are prostrate on the ground or where they are raising their hands to the heavens or they are considering the stars at night. All of these different things. And we Most of us, if you're like me, you sit in a chair with your eyes closed. And that's okay some of the time. But there's a a whole bounty out there that you're missing. Uh, Another thing that's so important is to focus on Christ and his kingdom. So often our prayers sound like that old country music song, Want to Talk About Me. Uh, And... You really don't want that to happen. But but the problem is, the more that we speak truth about Christ and his kingdom and worship in our prayer life, it turns our heart toward Christ and his kingdom and away from our um, wants that are not uh, in accord with his will. 
and then be confident that God's presence is with you when you pray. Um, the fifth letter, bolster faith and cultivate virtue. Cultivate is a big word. Uh, most of us are at least a generation removed from the farm now, uh, but any of you that spend any time on a farm where crops are grown, cultivating is a lot of work. It is not uh, something where you just drop a seed and then you don't worry about it anymore. That doesn't work. So cultivating virtue is important. And then the next one, uh, and this was in the letter about the war, um, when something terrible happens, immediately cry out to God. Don't spend <clears throat> hours in anxiety and what ifing and thinking about all the things that could go wrong. Just immediately go to God. Satan wants to keep us from doing that. Um, focus on values and causes that are bigger than yourself. Um, scripture is full of that. Um, one of the things that's really interesting, sometime when you have spare time, sit down and read through the Gospel of Mark and just look at how much Jesus seeks anything for himself. And what you will see is there's... He is totally focused on others. Um, understanding our mortality. We live in a culture where we want to eat well, and exercise very well, and maybe have some Botox, um, whatever it might be, that keeps us looking youthful. And um, part of the deal with that is that we're trying to cheat death. We somehow think that if we're in good enough shape, we're going to be okay. Um, and being in shape is a good thing, but we need to remember that we were, like the old spiritual says, man is born to die. All my trials, Lord, soon be over. And, you know, if you are living in the light of your mortality, it changes the way that you live. It's just like people that get a dread disease diagnosis. It changes them, um, not just how they are feeling physically, but how they want to spend their time. Um, and then avoid contented worldliness. That might be a good subtitle for... Um, this whole thing, because basically what Screwtape says is if he can get people to the state of contented worldliness, where you're feeling pretty good about things, and you just are chilling out, um, that's great. He doesn't need to tempt you to any spectacular sin, because you're checked out of the game. All right, so letter five, one of the other things about it is there's a couple of truths. We're going to see this in some of the letters. We're going to get some truths to remember in spiritual warfare. Um, the devil wants to fill you with anguish and bewilderment and despair. He is proactively working to fill you with those things. So if you are experiencing those things, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the devil that's causing it, but it might be. Um, so you want to be aware of that and you want to resist. Scripture tells us resist the devil and he will flee from you. But if you're just like, oh, I feel despair. Oh, I feel despair. There's nothing I can do but embrace it. Um, that is not helpful. Resisting is important. All right. The second thing is the devil is constantly seeking to undermine your faith and prevent you from cultivating habits of virtue. It's not an accident that when you finally decided 
to take the initiative and go do an Inklings-type walk with your friend and have a real conversation that it starts pouring down rain and goes down to 45 degrees. You know, there, there are, the devil is out to stop you from these things. So last time, letter six, these are the things that we teased out. The first one is to dwell in the present and to refuse to embrace worry, fear, and anxiety for the future, awfulizing. This is one of the diseases of our age and of the Christian church. Jesus, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, over and over and over again says, do not be anxious. Or, in another translation, do not worry. Yet, if I were to ask you how many of you worried in the last 24 hours, we'd probably all raise our hands. But what if we were to take that seriously, that we're not to do that? In the same way, we're not to murder people. Um, we're not to commit adultery, all those kinds of things. Um, sufficient to the day is its own trouble. So this is something that's really worth contemplating. Another thing, discipline your mind to be sensitive to sinful patterns of thought and temptation so as to avoid them while having a bias toward acting rather than simply feeling when it comes to acts of obedience. And basically the idea here is that if you are thinking about doing something bad, you need to be aware when those starts, thoughts start coming so you can take those thoughts captive. Um, but also, if you're feeling like you want to go do something that's good, you want to not just contemplate those feelings. You want to actually act and go and do whatever it is. Um, the third thing, focus on fostering love and charity and individual relationships with real people. Love your neighbor. And this is talking about that uh, whole idea that's summed up in that Peanuts cartoon that we had. I love mankind. It's just people I can't stand. And it's really easy to say, oh, I feel so bad for those people in the famine in Ethiopia. I feel so bad for them. And maybe I'll send a check. <laughs> and then we leave it at that. And then we go outside and our neighbor is there and we yell at them about leaving their garbage can out for longer than 24 hours. <laughs> and so what, what Screwtape is saying, that's exactly what you want to cultivate. You want to get people so that they are feeling benevolent toward people that they've never met but that the actual people that they're in relationship with, they're obnoxious to. So, and then the fourth one, keep will and intellect and fantasy straight in your thinking and submitted to the Holy Spirit. And again, this is from letter six. It is only insofar as virtues reach the will and are there embodied into habits that they are really fatal to us. And that's sort of the idea of many of us have the idea that we would like to spend time in scripture on a daily basis. That is something that should be a baseline behavior and habit of anyone who is a follower of Christ. And we all know that intellectually. And many of us try to practice that, but what happens is we may sort of think about it a lot, 
but not really get around to doing it very often. And what Screwtape is saying here is that when we just think about having a quiet time and just think about being in Scripture, Satan loves that because we're not actually doing it. But if we are every day in Scripture and every day in prayer in the same way that we are every day brushing our teeth when we get up in the morning, when it becomes part of our daily routine, Satan is really annoyed by that. And it gives, um, one of the things you'll see in these letters is he talks about the noxious cloud that many Christians seem to be surrounded by this noxious cloud. And Satan and screw tape and Wormwood can't quite see through it and they can't quite tell what's going on. But it, it infuriates them because if the patient is surrounded by this noxious cloud, they can't do anything. And that noxious cloud is caused by being in scripture and in prayer. So that is a good thing to keep in mind. So that brings us to letter seven. And I think I'm going to close this door. A little robust out there. (laughs) So just one little disclaimer. I'm sure you all realize this, but we are just skimming the surface in these letters. They are all worthy of a lot more time than we're giving them. So, letter seven. My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with cruel dilemma. Don't you feel so sorry for him? Yeah. <laughs> a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialist and skeptics, at least not yet. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is in effect a belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy. The life force, the worship of sex, and some aspects of psychoanalysis may here prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping, what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. Now, just a little diversion here for a moment. This is very similar to where our culture is right now, because you hadn't noticed that. Uh, It is really interesting how many people, um, and particularly if you're in my line of work and you're wearing this red, you have these conversations a lot. And yeah, people will say, well, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Yeah. And, well, do you believe in God? Well, no, but I'm spiritual. Well, that's exactly what he's talking about here. So, vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. 
I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. I had not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. This is referring back to when the war, World War II breaks out and he thinks he's going to be called up. All extremes except extreme devotion to the enemy are to be encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and then it is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, are unbalanced and prone to faction. Hmm. And it is our business to inflame them. Any small coterie bound together by some interest which other men dislike or ignore tends to develop inside itself a hothouse mutual admiration and toward the outer world a great deal of pride and hatred which is entertained without shame because the cause is its sponsor and it is thought to be impersonal. Hmm. Even when the little group exists originally for the enemy's own purposes, this remains true. We want the church to be small, not only that fewer men may know the enemy, but also that those who do may acquire the uneasy intensity and defensive self-righteousness of a secret society or a clique. The church herself, of course, is heavily defended, and we've never yet quite succeeded in giving her all the characteristics of a faction. But subordinate factions within her have often produced admirable results, from the parties of Paul and Apollos at Corinth down to the high and low parties in the Church of England. If your patient can be induced to become a conscientious objector, he will automatically find himself one of a small, vocal, organized, and unpopular society, and the effects of this on one so new to Christianity will almost certainly be good, but only almost certainly. Has he had serious doubts about the lawfulness of serving in a just war before this present war began? Is he a man of great physical courage, so great that he will have no half-conscious misgivings about the real motives of his pacifism? Can he, when nearest to honesty, no human is ever very near, feel fully convinced that he is actuated wholly by the desire to obey the enemy? If he is that sort of man, his pacifism will probably not do us much good, and the enemy will probably protect him from the usual consequences of belonging to a sect. Your best plan in that case would be to attempt a sudden, confused, emotional crisis from which he might emerge as an uneasy convert to patriotism. Such things can often be managed, but if he is the man I take him to be, try pacifism. Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause. 
in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. The attitude which you want to guard against is that in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, that's backwards from what God tells us, once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, he is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cage full down here. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So there is a lot to unpack in here. And as I said, we're just going to skim the surface. So... The first thing, uh, in terms of habits to annoy the devil from this letter, um, again, know your enemy, that he is real and proactive. When you doubt whether there's Satan, you doubt whether they're demons, you doubt whether they're powers of darkness, you're right where they would like you to be. So uh, this great verse from 1 Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that is so important to remember. Because if you know that there's something about which is going to devour you, it will impact your behavior. We were just in Lake Lure for a little while after our conference, and Lake Lure has had a lot of bear sightings recently. And so there are all of these signs everywhere about your garbage and be watchful of bears and there's a whole bear website you can go to and all of that um, might be a little bit of overkill but the fact of the matter is if you think there's a bear out there it changes your behavior yeah. and as Christians the fact that the devil is prowling around like a lion should affect our behavior and the concomitant part of that is cultivate extreme devotion to Jesus Christ and this beautiful verse from 1 Corinthians, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And what this habit really means, and the reason that annoys Satan so much, is that Satan wants us to become extremists, where our life is devoted to some cause, but not the cause of Jesus Christ. Because if we are consumed with whatever that cause might be, then what happens is even if that cause has some parallels with certain aspects of the kingdom of God, we start using our faith as a means to an end with that cause. And when the faith and the cause get wrapped up together and something goes wrong with the cause, it undermines and discredits the faith as well. So 
this is something that is really, really important. There's going to be a whole letter on this later um, that's actually really funny where he talks about the causes that people can get behind. And so he talks about you know, Christianity and. You always want to have Christianity and something else. So he's like, Christianity and um, prohibition or Christianity and euthanasia or Christianity and spelling reform. You know, it's just like this crazy list. But the idea, I think, is really true, that when we become consumed with a cause, we end up in serious trouble. And it's very interesting. We don't think about this when we're reading the Gospels, but when you read the Gospels, look how focused Jesus is on the kingdom of God. It is truly remarkable. And I mean, you kind of think, well, of course, duh, he's the Messiah. But there are, there are a lot of other things he could have focused on. The Roman Empire and the oppression that was conducted by the Roman Empire and the political intrigue and dishonesty and flagrant public immorality and corruption and all of that that's going on and the government in Judea and in the Roman Empire was absolutely appalling. And it was so appalling uh, that people were regularly losing their lives unjustly. But you don't ever see Jesus take on the government. You don't ever see him do that. He could have, but he understood that his kingdom is not of this world. And that does not mean that we should be irresponsible citizens and we should ignore the government, but it also means we need to be very wary of getting our faith and our politics so intertwined that you can't tell which one is which. And um, Lewis has some great words about politics that we'll talk about on another evening. (laughs) But this uh, cultivating extreme devotion to Christ is so important because We want to be about his kingdom. And the more that we focus our hearts and our minds to the things of his kingdom, these other things will fade. And then the third thing, avoid factions. (coughs) Now, factions, uh, I'm sure you all know what factions are, but any small group of people, um, particularly a splinter group, um, who are passionately outraged about something. Uh, oh goodness! Not that there's any of that uh, in our culture right now. We we live arguably, I think, in the most factionalized period of human history. It is astounding how many factions that there are, and how many ways that you can accidentally set people off um, with treading on their faction and. There, I want you to just listen to these words. This is brilliant. He says, Any small coterie bound together by some interest which other men or women dislike or ignore tends to develop inside itself a hothouse mutual admiration. Mm-hmm. Just think about those words. A hothouse mutual admiration. A hothouse uh, is a greenhouse with steam heat that's designed to help plants survive that couldn't survive in the real environment. They can only survive in the hothouse. And this hothouse mutual admiration of, we are all so right, 
and all those other people out there are so stupid. And if everybody was as smart as we are and committed to this cause, then we could save the whole world right now. And we call and, it echo chambers. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And he says that when you have this, the result is a great deal of pride and hatred. Hatred, not that we're seeing that. <laughs> hatred, which is entertained without shame. Because we know we're right. We know we are right. And they are wrong, and therefore we can hate them, and it's not anything personal, but they're just evil. <laughs> and, and people really... Yeah, yeah. No, it is, and our culture is rife with this. Now, the interesting thing about it is if you look at Galatians 5, just look at this where Paul is talking about spiritual warfare, and he says the acts of the flesh, i.e. that which is inspired by Satan, are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Well, we don't have that. <laughs> Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Now, I don't know if you've watched the news this week, but this has been another one of those really bad weeks on, on all of that. I mean, it's like the commercial for all of this. And the really sad thing is this has been another one of those weeks where two college freshmen have died in fraternities from alcohol poisoning. Yep. You know, it just, it's just astounding. So avoid factions. Now, it's so easy to say, those people are in a faction. I would never do that. But the problem is that it's all too easy for us to become factions. It's all too easy for Christians to become Pharisees and to f forget that whole idea that judging belongs to God and not to us. That our, remember, Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And whenever our judgment is outrunning our love, that means we need to take a step back and realize that we are becoming a faction. And Satan, the best, Satan would love it. If he could get all of us so convinced of the rightness of all of our positions on every issue that we thought that was what defined our faith, and we just sat back and threw rocks at everybody that disagreed with us. But that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that is something that is really important. And then the fourth thing, keep your faith in Christ as the core and framework of your life with prayer and sacrament and charity and scripture rather than mix your faith with any cause. And there are all sorts of wonderful causes out there and there are places to stand up for the truth and all of that. But the trick is that you, you have to keep your faith in Christ as the core and not whatever the cause is. You might remember that old adage that the good is the enemy of the best. And Satan, if he can get us off on a cause, even if it's a good cause, if it distracts us away from being gospel people, then we are going to be playing right into his hands. 
So there's a lot to think about in there. Unfortunately, we probably, at least I know, I need to look in the mirror on some of that. Um, so it is something to contemplate. So jumping completely out of that for a minute and into Montre and into the stream of awesomeness coming from the hydrant at that conference. Um, this was a really exceptional conference, not just because I'm a Lewis nerd, uh, but it was an exceptional conference because we had at that conference probably of the 20 top living scholars on Lewis, we probably had eight of them there in one room, which was just astounding. But the other thing that was remarkable is that these people are serious scholars who have written long tomes. And so sometimes at things like that, people come up and they say, oh, I have my paper that I would like now to present. Here we go. I will now read to you for 90 minutes. And it was totally not like that at all. And one of the great things was that there was a lot of prayer in the conference before talks, and that one of the speakers got up and gave this great story about growing up poor and going to his public school cafeteria and learning one day when he got 30 cents from uh, his mother for the first time where he could actually eat in the cafeteria, and he didn't know what to do, and he followed this girl through the cafeteria line, and she said, I would like a large portion of green beans and so he was like oh I wonder what that word portion is and then he saw her plate there were like all these green beans and he was like wow that's really cool and so he followed her and she got a couple of other things and then they got to the dessert part and he said he looked at the desserts and that it was remarkable um, with what economy they had been able to get a hundred slices out of a pie meant to serve eight people. And so he said he looked up at the cafeteria lady and said, could I get a large portion of pie? And that she came back with this big piece that she had gone and cut specially for him. And then he said, so I learned what the word portion meant. And what I want to say to you is that if you came to this conference hoping for a large portion of C.S. Lewis... I hope you go home deeply disappointed. But if you want to get a large portion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I hope that you go home full to overflowing. And I think that is really what happened. And the whole focus of the conference was on the fact that Lewis was somebody who lived his entire life pointing toward the gospel. And that the more that we understand that and understand the different aspects of his work, we too can use his experience and his life as a pointer to the gospel. So there, there are a number of talks. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little synopsis of each talk one at a time at the end of a class. So tonight we're doing Diana Glyer. And Steve, could you grab that company they keep book over there? Um, Diana Glyer, in my opinion is one of the two or three most important inkling scholars in the world right now. Um, she wrote this book, The Company They Keep, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, and Writers and Community. Um, she single-handedly turned scholarship about Lewis and Tolkien upside down 
because there had been a lot of work previous to her work that said they were friends, Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings were friends, but they really didn't influence each other's work that much. Mm -hmm. Now, those of you that have been in this class Mm -hmm. where I drew heavily on her know that that's absolutely ridiculous. But that was the academic consensus, and she just felt in her gut, starting when she was in high school, she said, that that was wrong. And so she devoted her life to becoming a scholar and... When she finally got to working on her Ph.D., she got approved to work on this. And so she decided she was going to read every work written by any of the Inklings. She read 350 works, some of which are 900-page long academic terms. And as if that were not enough, she then went to the Bodleian and Oxford, the Wade Center at Wheaton College, and she found the manuscripts for all of these works and read the manuscripts and looked at the margin notes and compared the margin notes to other margin notes and amassed this huge pile of evidence that the Inklings were absolutely instrumental in one another's works and that they had very much lived out 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 about what it means to be the body of Christ and that they had pulled this work out of each other through their mutual encouragement. And when she gave this talk, I mean, it's just an honor to be in the presence of somebody that has done that kind of work. And um, she was the most lovely, um, really effective communicator. I told Stephen Karen before, I'm a little nervous about this because this book is so good, but so often people who are great scholars are lousy speakers, and I had never heard her speak, so I didn't know what we were in for, but holy cow, she was amazing. So she started off telling this story about Tolkien when he was seven, who wrote a little story called A Green Great Dragon, and Tolkien's mother was really smart, and she sat him down and explained, you can't say it that way in English you have to say a great green dragon because you have to get your modifiers in the correct order. And he was fascinated by that, and that was what set him off to study philology, um, the study of how languages work. Um, And one of the main points that she was making was that Lewis and Tolkien and their friendship, their deep Christian fellowship with each other that was rooted in their shared faith, that that was the fountain, if you will, that was at the core of the Inklings. And the presence of the Holy Spirit and that relationship flowed over and through their encouragement of one another and their example, it transformed this whole community of people that gathered around them. And she also wanted, she went to some lengths to point out things that people forget, which is that Tolkien and Lewis were very different from each other. And part of the backdrop of all this is she she was talking about what does Lewis have to say to us of the polarity of the culture in which we find ourselves. So she pointed out Lewis and Tolkien were different in age and teaching experience and nationality, Lewis being from Northern Ireland. Um, They're different in religion, uh, different in academic rank. Um, when Tolkien and Lewis first met and became deep friends, Lewis wasn't a Christian. He was an atheist. Mm -hmm. Tolkien was a devout Catholic, uh, but Lewis was an atheist. 
And Lewis said that friendship with Tolkien marked the breakdown of two of the strongest prejudices in his life. The first, trusting a Catholic, which if you're a Protestant from Northern Ireland, you just don't. Catholics in Northern Ireland are usually the servants. Um, It's a class distinction. And um, so trusting a Catholic and a philologist. Lewis had come up through the other side of the English academic training where they didn't trust philologists. And Tolkien was both, and Tolkien ended up becoming central in Lewis's conversion. What if Tolkien had said, well, I'm a Christian, I don't spend time with people who are not. What if the fact that Tolkien was six years older had stopped him from spending time with Lewis? There are all of these differences and they had very different temperaments. Um, Lewis had a very robust sense of humor, a big voice, a hearty laugh, dressed more informally, casual, stocky, emphatic, expressive, loud, joyful, enjoyed life and people, and he had broad and eclectic taste. He knew something about everything. Tolkien, on the other hand, was very slight and thin, sort of elf-like, um, always impeccably dressed, very natty. He looked like he walked out of a catalog. He had a whole collection of colored and embroidered vests. He always wore a suit and a vest and a tie with a watch chain every day of his life, no matter what he was doing. Um, one student described him, Tolkien came into the classroom lightly, gracefully, he read like no one else I'd ever heard, courteous and ever so kind, serious, detailed, precise, self-described as having narrow interest and sympathies. So these two men, it's not just obvious that they would like each other. And when they met at the English faculty meeting uh, that was at University College, Tolkien didn't note anything in his diary at all about meeting Lewis. But Lewis wrote a little entry in his diary. Remember, he's still an atheist at this point. He said, Matt Tolkien seems to be okay as a chap, a small, pale, fluid type, just <laughs> needs a good smack. <laughs> so, but you see, from that, developed this deep friendship. And we talked um, back in this class some time ago about how what really set their friendship off was when Tolkien took the risk to be vulnerable and shared this long poem called The Lay of Luthien that he had written with Lewis. And that was a very risky thing to do. It was both academics, and this is a non-academic work. They didn't know each other that well. And Lewis took it, and he loved it. And he sent Tolkien a note and said, this has brought me so much joy But then what was even better, he then wrote 14 pages of notes on it um, in a very clever way. And Tolkien felt so unbelievably affirmed by that. And then they started meeting weekly just to spend some time together. So Diana talked a lot about how dyads, these friends, two friends together, are at the core of this kind of collaborative creativity. And she talked a lot about some science that is showing us more about this um, with mimetic impulse and mirror neurons, some really interesting studies about mothers who are holding babies and how, as we can now measure brain function because of the development of imaging, that they're, even when there's not verbal communication, just holding each other like that causes cognitive development in the baby, but not just in the baby, in the mother as well. And so 
this this design that God has made us for community and that joy is found when we devote ourselves sacrificially to the other's highest good. And the differences spark growth. And all of this in Tolkien and Lewis's life stemmed from a commitment to regular face-to-face time with no agenda. And we forget although y'all probably haven't forgotten because I've harped on it so much. Um, These guys were unbelievably busy. They are academics in the top university, arguably, in the world, and they're doing all kinds of things, and they've got family commitments and all this, and yet they start having this long lunch together every week. That soon spawns an Inklings meeting in the evening, which soon spawns an Inkling meeting at lunch on a different day, And they're spending all this time together every week. And the result of it is that we have things like mere Christianity. We have the Chronicles of Narnia. We have the Lord of the Rings. None of these things ever would have happened. And so it sort of begs the question of what might happen if we were to take this idea seriously. Look at who God is putting in our path. Try to go deep in those relationships and just see what might happen. And she, she kept emphasizing the center of the Inklings is neither Lewis nor Tolkien, but their friendship. The transactional space between them is what was life-giving and flowed over into ever-expanding circles. And then she talked about Ephesians 4, when each part of the body is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Mm. And it was, this is, this is like just a little thumbnail, but it was so good that like most of the people over where I was sitting, including me, were weeping in this talk. And then the instant she finished, there was just a spontaneous standing ovation. Um, it was it was just remarkable. So um, we think we're going to get some kind of recordings from that conference. Uh, as soon as I find out about that, I will let you know, uh, because they will be well worth listening to. Well, must have been in heaven. It was pretty great. Um, I will say Satan put temptation in my path while I was there, uh, because there was a rare bookseller that specializes only in the works of the Inklings, and you would go out on break, and there would be a signed first edition of the Screwtape Letters, and a signed first edition of The Hobbit, and just like thing after thing after thing after thing. Did you buy anything? I did. I, I did buy a few things, but the things that I bought were on the... They also had a lot of just obscure stuff that only people like me would like. Um, and they had a whole table that was things that were $5 and less, some of which were, like, really great. So, yes, I did get some of those. So, I did not. I did not. So... Um, she is probably in her 50s. Um, she is a deeply Christian woman. She said she had people all over the United States praying for her. Um, and the talk, we, a number of us talked with her, and we're trying to get her. She's never been to Charleston, so we think she should come. But, I mean, she is well-known, I mean, outside of Christian circles as a scholar. So she's the kind of person we could probably get in at the Library Society or... Yeah, something like that. But she would be a great person to have come. So, where does she live? Um, she lives in California. Ah. Yes. How long has she been doing doing the research? Since she was in high school. Oh, okay. wow. so more than like twenty years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It is her life's wow. work. Yeah, yeah. Wow. it's an amazing thing. But if you haven't read this book, 
Um, it's really good. If you, if you think this one might be too much scuba diving um, for you, there is uh, sort of the company they keep light, um, which is called Bandersnatch, um, which is a also a really good book that sort of is by her, but it's a little less weighty. So um, we're almost out of time, so let me just read this quote. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the wisdom that is contained in these letters about how to annoy the devil. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be able to take to heart um, the insights and wisdom that we've seen from these letters and that we would live our lives in such a way that we are extremists for love and for your kingdom. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Wow. Wow.